You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. It will be posted there every week. This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So before we jump into some of the news that I found interesting this week, we are going to catch up with what's going on with the crew. A lot has happened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I forgot to mention that there was no episode last week because we were out bear hunting. Uh, We were actually doing two concurrent hunts. Myself and Jace were out hunting bears in one area, while Randy and Orlando and Dale were out hunting bears in a different area. And I don't want to, you know, give away any spoilers, but we definitely got our butts kicked. I can only speak for myself and Jace, but we struggled for a while. But at the very end of the hunt, we did manage to get into some. So we'll have some video content coming up in the future from those hunts. And we're not done bear hunting yet. We still have another almost month of the season left. Also, fun news, I bought a boat. Myself and Karen got a new boat. It's a, well, not a new boat. It's a super old cheap boat, but it's awesome. We were able to take it out for a a few rips before and after bear hunting and try to catch some bass again. And uh, definitely no Kevin Dance. Bad joke, I know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember occasionally watching bass fishing uh, TV back in the day and thinking it was super boring, but now that, now that I'm a big boat guy, I guess I have to follow some of these uh, bass influencers and, and figure out this whole bass fishing thing. Did manage to catch one small one, and we ate it, and it was delicious, which apparently, though, with the bass culture, you're not supposed to keep and eat the bass. I think they're super tasty. As for other fish with the boat, managed to catch some bottom feeders as well, caught a catfish and caught a burbot. And that was actually my first burbot, not through the ice. First burbot through open water, so that was exciting as well. The more talented fishing portion of the crew had a lot more luck than I did. Matthew continues to have a blast out on the coast, catching salmon, making all of us jealous. It looks ridiculously fun in addition to those things being so tasty. Yeah, definitely jealous. Uh, But Michael is going to catch us up with the mainland fishing report. This is the fishing corner over here. I'm like the only one in the office who likes fishing more than hunting. I guess last week we had a really good hatch of caddis on one of the rivers around here. You guys, if you've ever watched one of our Anyfins episodes, you've seen some of that. But fished that last week. Took my girlfriend out on the boat a couple days ago. She got a nice one. Um, Going to Fort Peck next week. Just been doing the doing the thing every day, going out, catching trout. So nothing really new over here. Weather's starting to warm up. We're getting some spring runoff. So I'm going to have to figure some things out. Tie and fly season. Today will be my 72nd day. So it's about every day unless it's bad weather or fly tie and night. Thank you, Marcus. Back to you. (laughs) On to some news. The Wyoming Migration Initiative started sharing videos recently of a collared deer that has a camera at the base of its neck so you can see exactly what the deer is seeing. Pretty cool stuff. So this is part of a migration study. So they're following this deer as it migrates through Wyoming and you get to see exactly what it encounters along the way. They also have the GPS data so they can pair that with the video and know exactly where everything's at. Uh, They're posting these videos on Instagram and Facebook on a weekly basis, so it's pretty cool. You kind of get to follow along. The video's from last year as uh, this deer migrated, but they're kind of releasing it similarly timed to the, the actual migration. So it's kind of a, they're telling a story and also you get to learn about wildlife management and science at the same time. I don't love the idea that they gave the deer a name 
Uh, they called it Dell. The whole personification of animals is a little weird, but I get it. You want to get people to connect with the animals, and it, it does create for some interesting storytelling, so I get it. Yeah, this particular study is looking at migration barriers. Um, I've also seen studies in the past where they put collars on bears to get at, to get at diet, because you can see exactly what they're eating. Pretty cool stuff. You get really fine-scaled data with this. Crazy to think about how far technology has come and what all the new tools that are available to wildlife managers and researchers. It's super fun to see all this stuff. Also, check out migrationinitiative.org. So that's their website, and it's a collection of researchers and scientists that uh, work together on different projects and collaborate. But they also include media production. So they have photographers and videographers that they work with, and they put out articles, and they have social media. And it's one of the best examples I've seen of bridging the gap between wildlife researchers and managers and the general public and the hunters. A lot of times there's a disconnect where you don't necessarily get the information across to the general public. And so this is super cool to see. I really like what they're doing. Public outreach, getting people to understand what they're actually doing on the ground. Uh, it's really cool. It's a cool example. Check out the website. I'll put a link in the description. Um, yeah, good stuff. This year, another outbreak of the bird flu is moving across the United States. 34 states have documented outbreaks and it has affected nearly 38 million birds. Obviously, this is no good for the poultry industry, but there has also been impacts within the wild bird populations. Waterfowl are known carriers, and it appears that snow and Canada geese are taking it pretty bad. Multiple raptors are dying from it, likely from eating infected waterfowl. And now, the bird flu has been detected in wild turkeys for the first time in Montana and Wyoming. Several turkeys have ended up dead, and it's suspected that the number is likely much higher of unknown deaths. Historically, it seemed as though most wildlife managers weren't concerned with the turkeys being affected by the disease, but now that a few wild birds are dying, it is gaining attention. Concerns are growing, especially in Montana, as the legislature recently appropriated a million dollars for a pheasant rearing program. Uh, so where birds are bred in captivity to be released on state lands in Montana, Concerns from sportsmen, including a letter sent from Montana backcountry hunters and anglers sent to FWP, voiced their concerns about rear the rearing program. It could end up as a vector infecting more wild birds or just end up being a complete waste of money if the whole rearing facility needs to be cold. A press release from Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks said that they are following strict biosecurity protocols and are testing pheasants every three months. So we will see if anything comes out of that. So far, the wild bird population appears to be taking it much worse back than back in 2015, and it appears to be affecting more species as well. Not only within birds, but it also has been documented within mammals for the first time in North America. Uh, several foxes have been found to die from it, uh, tested positive for the virus in Minnesota and Ontario. Also, a human tested positive for the bird flu in Colorado after working in choline-infected poultry. They had mild symptoms and they have since recovered, and the CDC still considers the bird flu a very low risk to humans. We'll see. Who's ready for pandemic round two? Another unfortunate disease incidence. Nine bighorn sheep recently died from pneumonia in Montana in the Little Belts where they were transplanted last year. The sheep were moved from the Missouri River breaks into the Little Belts where sheep had been absent for quite some time. Uh, Dale and Jay Spear were actually down there filming this with the Wild Sheep Foundation. Uh, it was a cool project, but unfortunately, these bighorns are getting sick and they're starting to die. This is not a new phenomenon. Pneumonia outbreaks have killed a lot of sheep across the West. So researchers know that MOV, mycoplasma ova pneumonia, probably pronouncing that wrong, is one of the main pathogens associated with causing pneumonia die-outs. But interestingly, a lot of the Missouri break sheep have had this pathogen and tested positive for MOV for years. But they've never had a significant die-off. The same can also be said about some populations in Wyoming. 
So what is it that caused these sheep to start dying once they were moved? Because again, the break sheep, which the source population is, never had a die off. So what happened? What was it the stress from the move? Was it this new environmental factor, different habitat? Was it some other pathogen that somehow got added into the mix? I don't know, but it's really interesting to think about. Bighorn sheep are one of those species that are just so dang cool. They live in the coolest terrain, but they're just so susceptible to disease and hard to understand. A bill has been introduced to ban all lead ammunition on U.S. Fish Wildlife Service land. These lands are primarily in the form of wildlife refuges. The bill is new, but this idea has been around for a while. Uh, back in 2016, the Fish Wildlife Service issued an order that had a plan to phase out lead on refuges, both lead ammunition and lead sinkers from fishing tackle. But with the administration change and director change in 2017, they revoked that order. This is a really interesting one because there are several forces pushing for phasing out lead within the world of hunting and it's never cut and dry, unfortunately. So you have conservation organizations concerned about lead poisoning with birds moving up the food chain. This has been documented to be an issue with California condors and many raptor species as they scavenge carcasses from animals that were shot with lead ammunition and they die from it later. But then you also have anti-hunting organizations that are using this idea to ban lead as another chink in the armor to ban hunting altogether. Um, Lead was banned long ago within the world of waterfowl as birds would frequently pick it up in areas that have had extensive hunting over water. So now waterfowlers use steel shot. Uh, it's more expensive, but it's relatively affordable. It's relatively available. In the world of big game hunting, the vast majority of ammunition available still contains lead. There are some really good copper bullets that have come out, but generally they're quite a bit pricier. And that's what makes this one so tough. Ammunition is already super hard to find and the non-lead ammo is that much more scarce. Until the supply can catch up, it's gonna be impossible to switch everyone over from lead. Uh, I shoot copper bullets in one of my rifles and I haven't seen a box of those shells on the shelf for years. I have 18 rounds left. After that, I don't know. So using non-lead ammo is likely better for the environment and the wildlife, but with the current production and prices, it isn't really feasible to have everyone switch over. It's hard to think that it, this bill wouldn't exclude some hunting opportunity. Uh, personally, I really like the approach that some agencies are taking where they're incentivizing hunters to use non-lead in areas of concern. Such as in Arizona, you're entered into a raffle for using non-lead ammo in areas that have California condors. Uh, so things like that are kind of cool. Incentives rather than an outright banning seems like a pretty good solution for, for the, at least within the current state of production of ammunition. In Montana, another attempt is being made to remove limited entry elk permits and go to a general draw in a lot of areas. We continue to hear ideas similar to this and we've been talking about it on and off for a while now, but here's a little quick refresher to put it into context. Montana has some great elk populations and many areas within the state have increased a lot lately. Montana is also over 60% privately owned land. And a lot of the limited entry elk permits in question have a lot of private land in those areas and a lot of the elk are on the private land. The Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks has an elk management plan that takes into account the landowners and the, the outfitters and the hunters and all these different constituents and comes up with this elk management plan and has objectives for each district. So right now we are way over objective in a lot of the hunting districts, 50,000 elk in total over these objectives but pretty much everyone agrees that the elk management plan is out of date and needs to be revisited. The recent news, however, is that the United Property Owners of Montana filed a lawsuit against the Commission in Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, arguing that limited permits for bulls, bull elk, 
is the common denominator in the districts over objective. They go on to argue that the state officials are trying to force public hunter access onto private land, and then they go on to request that the judge declare elk regulations void and the FWP and the commission, within 90 days, develop a plan to, quote, remove, harvest, or eliminate thousands of elk. We got to look into this a little further, so Randy is going to join in, and we are going to do a deeper dive. Bulls for Billionaire Part Chap 2. Chapter, chapter two, 3, 4, three, 5, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, probably more than part 2, honestly. But it, it's definitely bulls for billionaires in Montana. <laughs> and people watching are going to think, is that all you guys deal with in Montana? Is out-of-state non-residents, like, the, we call them bulls for billionaires because there's a group that is mostly represented, or represents mostly, I guess would be the term, are very wealthy out-of-state landowners. Right. And... They've got money, they've got access to professionals, and so they're very effective at getting their case heard. And uh, For sure. I, I, but I feel like it's under a bit of a, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. This is just like my perception. I'm mm -hmm. trying to learn as I go, but right. it almost seems like the guy is trying to read through this lawsuit that they're, they're trying to represent these mom and pop ranchers right. kind of, or it's like, you know, the Zelker doing are economically damaging the land. They're eating right. unprecedented amount of grass. Mm -hmm. It also happens to be during a drought, which it's like mm -hmm. some of right. the arguments I think they're making. It's like, okay, well, there's yeah. other factors at play. Yeah. But, so uh, you, yeah. You're referring to the lawsuit that was filed against Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Right. Yeah. It, the, the case was brought, was brought up in April, but it didn't get publicly noticed and I'm not sure what the process is for public notice on this until last week. Yeah, April so, 6th, it looks like. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, this group that continues to uh, push this issue that we call Bulls for Billionaires. Right. And the idea, if you had to summarize their lawsuit, it's that Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks needs to kill 50,000 elk this year. Right. And get rid of any constraints on tags. And there's some stipulation, like, if 90 days to take action or something that's, like that's something to that that's effect. That's the request, yeah. Yeah. And in other words, remove the 20, the, the, we went through this whole season setting process for 22 and 23, yep. 2022 and 2023. And they're asking that to be waived. And if, if you read the case, it's, it's way too long to do in our little right. piece here, but... Uh, there's an awful, awful lot of claims asserted and requests being made. Yeah. Well, and so the one thing that we've talked about in the past that is referenced a lot in this is the Montana Elk Management Plan, right. which is how old now? Well, they started on it in 2003, worked on it in 2004, it got adopted in 2005, and it was supposed to be a 10-year plan. It said in there, you know, this is our, right. our, our every decade plan. So we're now seven years past due. Yeah, we really haven't even started on it. Yeah, and so <laughs> the thing is we're, and everything is referencing that that we're mm -hmm. over these objectives set by that plan, right. and that they have to follow these objectives. But then it also seems like almost everyone seems to be in agreement that it's out of date. Mm -hmm. I don't Everybody. know. Is anybody arguing that it's act like that it's no still relevant? Either. No. Yet they're still using the case that they need to. They're statutorily obligated to mm -hmm. follow those objectives. Right. 
because we do have a bill from 2003, I think it was called Senate Bill 42, yeah. by a legislator from your hometown <laughs> who said Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has to manage at or below stated objectives. Well, there's a couple things with that. Stated objectives aren't carrying capacity. Right. And the way these claims are always made, it's like, that's all the landscape can carry. No. Right. These objectives put in that plan started here. Hunters wanted them higher. By the time the politicians and interest groups got done, they're way down here. So I tell people, it's like if you had a building that could hold, say, a thousand people, but you arbitrarily said, well, we're only going to allow 20 people in here. And anything beyond that's going to be in violation of the fire code. Right. Well, it wouldn't be that hard to to break the fire code, to have more than 20 yeah. people in a building that can hold a thousand. Yeah. And so don't, when you hear objective, don't think that's any biological number. It has zero biological correlation. Oh, for sure. So. And that's what I noticed, like, reading through the lawsuit, it seems like there's a constant talk about managing at a, or below objective, right. but then also defending private property rights, which I mm -hmm. get, but yep. they're like, they don't like the rhetoric of the department, the department of Fish, Wildlife and Parks, unwillingness mm -hmm. to work with them, with the private landowners, if right. they don't allow public access. Right. And so to me, that's like this weird push and pull of mm -hmm. like, you have to manage, there, there's too many elk on our private land, we need less of them, but do not come on our private land. Exactly. Do not allow access on our private land. And so that's where it puts it in like a very tricky situation. It's like, right. okay, so there's too many elk, but you won't let the public touch them. Mm -hmm. It puts us in a tough spot. Right. Like, it's not yeah. like you can just yeah. go and let the landowner like, oh yeah, you go ahead, just shoot 500. Like yeah. you can't, that's not that's the way that the, the systems we have in place no, work I mean, and that never and hopefully you, will be. But. Right, and when you take that to the next step, this same group, has been promoting longer seasons, shoulder seasons, m more right. pressure on public land. And what happens when you do that? It just consolidates, elk are smart. It consolidates them in tighter and tighter groups on these inaccessible private places. Which is, so. that's the part that I struggle with so much, is mm -hmm. it seems like what they're pushing for is actually making the problem worse for them mm -hmm. for what they claim their problem is, and, which makes, I mean, wonder what the real problem and what the real intent is. And maybe, I, maybe well, I'm when, reading into it too no, much. No, let, let, let's just but say like, what it is. The yeah. real problem is they don't have unlimited access to bull elk tags. Right. And they want to use this issue, which, yes, these are over-objective areas because even though we legislatively say you have to manage at or below objective, well, unless... Montana state government says we're going to go violate someone's private property rights and force ourselves on there, which I would never support. Right. How do we get below objective? If the elk that are accessible are already being shot all, all <laughs> for eight months of the year. Yeah. So it's really, I mean, let's face it, you aren't going to lower elk numbers by shooting bull elk. But time and time again, their idea of this is... We need bull elk tags. We need more bull yeah. elk tags. Yeah, and the rhetoric that they're using is that, like, it, rather than being a limited entry district, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of these areas that are over 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 objective are, right. they want to move to a general season, which would essentially be right. unlimited bull permits. Right. And and, and so no no connection to how they're going to lower 
population numbers through the cow elk harvest. Exactly. And that's what I don't understand is it's like if you shouldn't you be arguing about reduction in the cow numbers? Mm -hmm. Like that's, I mean, it's basic biology. It's not right. a complex process to understand. Like no. if you're going to actually, if your stated goal is to reduce the population, you got to kill more cows. Right. And like, mm -hmm. I don't love that either, but it's just like what you're claiming is not the, right. that's not the way to do it. It just seems like, I don't know. And, and we have, I, I, and some people may think I'm being a smart aleck here, and maybe I'm to some degree, but we have one set of landowners that are concerned about the price of jet fuel and another set of landowners who are concerned about the price of diesel fuel. Right. And all hunters I know want to help the, the landowner who's incurring problems and, you know, has this headache beyond the price of diesel fuel. But the group that steals all the volume and flexes all their muscles are the ones who are concerned about their private jet fuel. Right. So let, let's not confuse these two groups because we got one group here that is so critical to the conservation of landscapes in Montana. And we all benefit by keeping them on the landscapes through drought, through disease, through whatever, through good times yeah. and bad. We have suggested many policies that would help the diesel fuel landowner Right. But it, it's, it's not what the jet fuel landowner wants. Yeah. The diesel fuel guy, if we give them, like we've been asking, give them way more cow elk tags. Mm -hmm. Let them harvest cow elk like crazy because a couple things. One, it's going to lower them. It's going to make them feel like people are listening to them. And two, it's going to push the elk onto the public where they're accessible. Right. Yeah, and I think that's like a good point too. Like we don't want to like throw all landowners under the bus. It's nope. not like it's not like everybody is in this in the like same everyone has varying levels of feelings and attitudes toward them, but towards the elk, but recognizing that there are economic damaging levels that right. there it does happen. Like there yeah. are elk that absolutely hammer certain people's pastures, but and then their fences. And, and they yeah. might even allow access during hunting season, but then, you know, whatever after so so many get shot or whatever or this various factors that are going to affect it and then they're they're uh they're not accessible to them when they are allowing public access and then as soon as they can allow public access or whatever then all those elk come back on and you know right. in the winter whatever they're just right. hammering those, those elk as a general rule move to these sanctuary jet fuel jet fuel guys right and so the jet fuel guys are like well yeah, we like them here and then as quick as season's over they go over here to the poor guy who's trying to make a living yeah so what we really have in Montana isn't so much an elk problem as a neighbor problem. Yeah. And nobody wants to say, this guy's not being a good neighbor. <laughs> he's, be, he's not being the kind of neighbor that the Montana landscape yeah. has been known for. And we've seen this change in the last 20 years. So quite honestly, I struggle to have a lot of concern about these manufactured claims of the jet fuel guys. But I have all the concern you could possibly muster for the guy, what I say is the diesel fuel guy. Because right. he is scratching out trying to make a living, he or she. Yep. And their families have been on these ranches as legacy ranches for a long time. And it just gets tighter and tighter and harder and harder. And when the markets are tougher, along comes another out-of-state billionaire waving money in front of him. And he's sooner or later going to say, screw it. So I... I think there's a lot of work to be done, but lawsuits like this, yeah. they're so easy to see through. You've, you've made the point, right, well, Marcus? Like, you, tell me how this is going to accomplish anything. Yeah, and then I think it's important to acknowledge, too, the perspective from, like, 
kind of our user group, public mm -hmm. land hunters, I guess, what will happen if this were to take place and it did go to generally seasons in those units, mm -hmm. the public hunting would be essentially worthless. Right. It would not, I mean, it would be horrible. It may mm -hmm. be good for a few weeks and then it would just, they'd pressure all of the elk onto private land right. and you wouldn't, you wouldn't right. have right. near the hunting quality. Right. The not even like just, not even like, because they were using trophy hunting quality and stuff as part of the rhetoric too. And I, mm -hmm. I get it. And there is some of that, but like a lot of it is this like just the elk physically being there. It's yep. not even about growing big bulls. It's this like, if you allow that many people onto those small chunks of public, public. land, and that's the yeah. other important thing too, is like, it's a lot of these districts are more than half, if not 70% privately owned Private. land. Yep. And so the public land, it's just tragedy of the commons. Everyone's mm -hmm. gonna focus on those spots because that's where the access is. Right. There's not, there's not gonna be any elk left on right. there. And I mean, so historically Montana has tried to balance that in some degree, but as we've added shoulder season, then we've added this, we've just put more pressure and more pressure. And so what this lawsuit is asking, put all the pressure on the public land. Don't mm -hmm. put any caps on anything and get rid of any caps that might constrain us and our friends from getting bull elk tags. And oh, when the public pushes all those elk here, we're gonna keep them here. Yeah. But then when season's over, we're gonna let him go over to Joe Lunchbucket's place and eat him out of house and home. Yeah. Yeah, so. and there are people that are working on this. I mean, they put mm -hmm. together the, what is it, the Elk, elk Council. Work? Elk Council, yeah, and then I, there's the uh, PLPW, yeah. and like this, there, there's, there are groups that are working actively towards this, and they're involving public input. But yeah, I've just yeah. been trying to follow along on some of this stuff, and it's tough to like. Oh, I, those I, meetings are like eight hours long. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to so, like scrub uh, through and listen to this. Stuff. You brought up a good point. The Citizens uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Elk Advisory Committee. Uh, they're meeting again next week. Yeah. Uh, and we got to get our comments in to them because they're the ones who are charged with, hey, listen to what the public's saying. We're asking for comments. Well, I've got a whole bunch of comments crafted, and I'm going to send them in. I hope everybody else does. And there's a, a link on the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks website where you can submit, submit comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like we're, I don't think any side's like, completely ignoring it like mm -hmm. people are trying to find solutions it's not right. it's a, it's all about how it gets done but yeah, yeah, and I think the the most progress that could be made is for the hunting community to look at who are these landowners who are bearing actual impacts right and give them a, a place where they feel represented and listened to yeah and for whatever reason we have a department and a legislature that is giving an awful lot of deference to this wealthy non-resident group we call the, you know, the bulls for billionaire crowd right. or the jet fuel crowd. Yeah. So we got to help these landowners who are critical to what we have as a future here in a state that's two thirds private. You, you, you have to accept and, and work towards that. Yeah. You know, you can't change it. This is the situation we have. How do we fix it and work together? Well, fringe groups coming in with other motives, filing lawsuits, doing whatever, introducing new legislation, that just, it seems like it's always setting us two steps back, even if we make a step forward. So, yeah, more of this going on. Yeah, it's going to, I mean, it's never going to end. I don't think yeah. it's just a push and pull and yeah. every constituent's going to argue for what they want the most. And it's yeah. just hopefully, you know, I guess 
as a public land hunter, I feel like I want to advocate for my my mm -hmm. beliefs, but at the same time acknowledge that other people have their own right. lifestyles and and I mean careers and mm -hmm. the entire generations of ranchers. So it's like important to right. acknowledge it, but at the same time, it's like I'm going to fight for what I believe in too. Yeah. So and, and some people think that I'm anti-successful billionaire. You know what? I I give them all the credit in the world. Good for you. But that doesn't mean the state of Montana is going to take a 179 degree pivot on how they have functioned because you showed up here. Right. And you want to be a, a different neighbor than the prior working landowner. Sorry. We're just that's probably not on our list of high priorities today. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, we'll continue to follow and see. Oh yeah, I, I bet you we out. get we got chapter ten through twenty coming in the oh, next yeah. year. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could just you know why can't we just all get along? <laughs> that would be never gonna happen. But so. anyway, if you have any uh, things you want to add and let us know, you can always email us at weekly at freshtracks.tv. Thanks for watching. <laughs>